0: Thanks for joining us today for the PSU's Pandemic Podcast. My name is Sarah Siddiqui. I'm a supported Return to Training Fellow based in the Professional Support Unit in London. In these podcasts, we'll be covering different themes around training and supervision, career concerns, well-being and difficult communications during the pandemic. for joining us for this episode of PSU's Pandemic Podcast on human factors in the clinical workplace. I'm going to introduce you to a team at Harefield Hospital who will be talking about how human factors affects them in their day-to-day clinical work.
1: It's been so important in day-to-day life in the hospital.
2: Within the military, you have human factors training on quite a regular basis, but we don't tend to have it as foundation trainees or medical students.
1: It's building effective relationships and recognising the fact that people react in situations because of a multitude of reasons has allowed me to be part of teams and build teams.
2: Make it more mainstream to be talking about these non-technical skills as opposed to just concentrating on clinical
1: knowledge. I think in summary, it allowed me to build relationships which enabled me to train effectively. And as I move and transition into being a consultant, they have made that transition easier.
0: So with me, I have Claire Mullins, who's a senior theatre service manager at Harefield Hospital. Hi, Claire. Hiya. Liz Alibone, who's Head of Clinical Education and Training at Harefield Hospital and also Chair of UK's Clinical Nurse Education Network. Hi. And finally, we have Sunny Cowell, who's an ITU consultant and a Respiratory Medicine consultant and Head of the Lung Division at Harefield Hospital. Hi, everybody. It's great to have you all here today. And There are a few questions that I wanted to ask you around human factors and how it affects your day-to-day clinical work. And my first question was exactly that. How has your knowledge of human factors helped you manage your day-to-day clinical work?
3: Personally, for me, I have found that dealing with staff in such a highly anxious time has been really, really interesting. We talk a lot in human factors about the term of the bucket essentially your psychological well-being um, and how overwhelmed you can be. I found that people were completely overwhelmed by this concept of COVID that we've all been inundated with. So the self-management that people would normally utilise just didn't cut it. So I found that identifying staff behaviour and reading into what might be seen as non-involvement or shying away, actually getting into the nitty-gritty of what's actually going on. And I found that once you give people the time and the tools to kind of break through whatever it is that's really affecting them, whatever they're most anxious about, then you can kind of get to the bottom of it and they can they can get over whatever the anxiety is. And I found that you really needed to give people your time. And that's been a really big one in order for them to empty their bucket a little bit and to be able to come to work and clinically give their time and skills to these patients who absolutely have needed it most.
4: I can only concur with what Claire said. I'll tell you where there's a personal, there's a professional bit, but they all merged into one. And most people know me. I live that way anyway. But it became so raw and There was nothing to hide behind anymore. I worked on a unit which transformed itself overnight into a high-dependency critical care unit, and it had never managed those patients before. And I walked on, and the human factor for me, um, looking back, was the recognition that people are well out of their safety zone by some massive margin, and yet they turned up to work, and they turned up to make a difference. So that was the commonness. We all had that in common. And the mind map reading that I had to make was when I was saying something, was it being registered, you know, or was it going straight through? And, and Claire said it, she said, it's where you spend your time. And once I read that I wasn't being registered in the same way, that my mind map wasn't being shared in the way I was, you know, thought it should be, I'd take the time. I step back and say, let's do this together. And it could be something simple as ticking off a drug chart or explaining the mechanism for why I'm doing what I'm doing, or when I ask for a certain value what it is I'm looking for and of course if you take the time and trouble at the beginning and set the foundation correctly and that communication is crucial that's the situational awareness getting the mind maps sorted out then I changed my communication to what I anticipated to being to what it was and that's tone and that's contact and that's content but it's also pace I completely changed the pace of what I was saying and then of course I got lucky because the desired effect was the right action and the right behavioral outcome and patients benefited hand over foot. And my colleague's smile just broadened as each day went by. To use specific examples, we're not used to in that unit looking after delirium and renal failure and respiratory failure and infection all in the same patient at the same time. And by the end of a week, and by the end of the second week and third week, amazing the change that had undertaken Claire said, I think you hit on the nut, Claire, that taking the time to give people tools and confidence at that beginning bit and not rushing it and not assuming anything. But sharing this mind map, tone, pace, content. And when we got that right, it spread like wildfire because they spread to each other. Liz, over to you.
5: So one of the things I've been called in to do is to get nurses prepared to step into critical care. I'd be asked, for example, you know, we've got a group of staff who haven't given intravenous drugs for a very long time and I need to refresh them. So I'd have a room where I'd have some highly experienced nurses running some real complex clinics for complex patients who are terrified because they've not given an intravenous drug for like 25 years and they're going to be told to go and look after some potentially very complex patients. Again, an unknown group of patients. It's not just you're going into IT to look after patients that we routinely look after all the time where we know the kind of pathway that patient's going to go down. It's also a group of patients that we're still learning about. We don't know about the condition necessarily, we don't know, you know what's going to be happening to them, what the complications are, because we're learning as well. So a lot of my role was, yes, I could have a, a teaching session set up to deliver, but actually I would spend probably 15 minutes a half an hour, right, listening to them and actually listening to their fears. And they wanted that, they wanted the opportunity to say that. Now another thing is that because of COVID we have to be really careful about the number of people we have in a classroom. So there was a big directive of no face-to-face teaching, you mustn't do it. But people needed to see somebody and say, we're really frightened about this. And you know, and I say, but you are experts. There are things that you are experts in. It's okay that you haven't given a drug for 25 years. Look at the things you do. Look at the way you communicate to patients and relatives. That's going to be really important when you step in and, and help. And if I'd just gone in there and said, right, well, I'm here to teach this. Off we go. I would have gone nowhere. And it's interesting because you've got almost like a hierarchy. You've got really experienced band sevens and eight A's really leading on things, sitting with a newly qualified nurse. Newly qualified nurses terrified because they've not given IV drugs before. You've got this highly experienced nurse suddenly at the same level as them. It was quite nice to see them together sort of supporting each other. But you're right, it's about fear management. It's about listening. Probably one of the first times I've had an email saying, we found your education session really reassuring. It wasn't like we learnt loads. It was just reassuring. And once you get that point, then they're ready to listen and ready to learn. They're already overloaded. Let's listen, break it down as what they need to do. It's sort of kind of what you're saying, but I'm seeing it from an educational perspective as well.
0: Thank you, everyone. I mean, you've already spoken about how you've overcome a difficult situation with human factors. How would you advise people to know more about human factors so that they can be better leaders and better communicators?
3: I'm highly passionate about communication when it comes to human factors. When I teach human factors, for me, it's all about, guys, my favorite topic, communication, because I think I'm so amazing at it. And we're hit every day with the reality that actually I'm not. And actually, I could have done it better. And why didn't they understand? Very clear instruction I thought I gave. And then throw everyone into a pandemic. And whatever you think you're good at, you're tested to the absolute limit. The biggest thing that I have found has worked the best during this pandemic has been to communicate clearly with people. And I've been doing that via an email update. And I do that at least once a week, sharing any changes that are happening so that all the staff are given the same level of information and they're able to hear it from me. Because I think the big thing is gossip, scaremongering. All that information is completely obstructive. It purely adds to anxiety. That is the one form of communication that I have had the most response to. That people say it's clear, it's straightforward. It comes whenever there is a big change that people need to know about. You don't do it too much, and you don't do it too little, and. People then have the opportunity to come to me if they need further clarification. For me, that's a big learning point which I can take forward.
4: Sunny, I had several places to be at the same time. So the whole capacity work balance was a big one for me this time. Respiratory medicine, intensive care, sorting out the managerial aspects. And then as you go in there and it's unknown, Liz said it as well, it's something we're learning about as we go along. I'm the only respiratory critical care person in the hospital. I've never felt it more than I did this time. The number of calls, I mean, I my phone ran out of battery three times a day on several days. I used to walk around with a charger and most of it was staff. And Liz said it, she was managing fear. If I was helpful, I think, was by managing fear, by hopefully being a voice of calm. And no, I don't know everything. I spent the first week talking to Wuhan and to Italy and then to Wuhan again and eight webinars with these people and sort of jamming yourself up. And there's an expectation. But I just found that when I hit the floor, the one-to-one was where it all started. And that's the crux of it all. If I walk on the floor and I look like I'm in trouble, I'm going to spread that like wildfire. And what I think I was conscious about, even though I've got to be honest with you, the heart was something, something else, was trying to make sure that the outward facing, the content and the pace of what I was saying was structured and it had to make sense. And both my colleagues have already mentioned this already. We had people in ICU who I hadn't worked there for many years or two had never worked there at all. The balance was already there. You could build on that. And that sense of if I get it right and I show them that this is not panic station, this can be managed, well, knowing internally, I didn't know I could manage it or not. But that, I think, made it for me. And as the war round went on, and I went on the second time and a third time in a day, actually we just cemented that relationship and that foundation just grew stronger it can't be stronger than as i said the smiles on people's faces at the end of the day when they come through the shift to say actually we achieved something we really accomplished something and that smile turned into a broader smile in weeks to come when they saw people leave the hospital and it's their work it's our work this is not one hour this is not one day but this is many days and hours of people you know, you sleep with this. I think I was murmuring about it in the night and you come back the next morning and you're still thinking it over. People, you know, having to pass away without loved ones being there. You know, the, the staff have helped me deal with that because someone, I know you're not supposed to touch it, but someone put a hand on the shoulder and say, it's all right, because they're, they're listening to me giving the information on the telephone and I put it down, they'll say, gosh, that was hard. And they reassure you, they comfort you, and then they make you ready to go in for the next one. In a way, they're clearing my bucket because I've got to go into the next phone call, the next ICU issue, the next clinical issue, the next non-clinical issue. I've got to go into the next one. And to have someone there to lighten you. And sometimes it's more than two or three people that come and say, you know, a hug is what you need at some points, you know, and we're in a COVID zone. And I would get that without tapping a button, but clearly they saw that they pursued the need. And then you put the armor back on and in you go. And actually, I can never thank those people because they're in that environment and they just happen to walk in they read the situation. They read my tension uh, without me saying anything, to be honest with you, but just listening to what's going on. They relieve me and we carry on. And caring and emotional sensitivity its so important. It's so understated. How that can reward you and, and make you more efficient, I think, is really what I've benefited from usually.
0: It really shows what sensitivity and compassion and emotional intelligence in a leader using human factors to approach his team or her team The difference it can make amongst that team and thank you so much for sharing that. Liz was there anything else you wanted to add?
5: I would echo what Claire said particularly about you know being briefed, the importance of a really good briefing because in our team sometimes we'd be approached by a manager about something that we knew nothing about we didn't know the background so I might contact a manager and say oh I want you to take some students or can you do this oh no we can't possibly at the moment and I'm thinking what's going on at the moment and it turned out a whole service was being redesigned and nobody told us so it's about us getting briefings as well so that we can understand what's going on out there so yeah clear current relevant briefings really important and I think Sunny was saying, it's about empathy and that caring. You know, we always talk about happy staff, happy patients. If you don't look after your staff, you can't look after your patients, and you've really got to look after each other. I think there's something else as well, which is something I've struggled with a bit and staff I'm working with, some junior staff in particular, we always strive for excellence and we have very high standards. The way things are being designed at the moment, sometimes we can't achieve that level at the moment because we're in a different area. We've lost control sometimes. Say we're a specialist nurse or a nurse in charge of an area that we're familiar with. We're in control. Now we move somewhere completely different. We're not in control and our usual excellence, we may not be able to achieve. So it's about going back to saying, you know, as long as it's safe and we're here to keep you safe. It might be, is this good enough? We always aspire for excellence, but sometimes you can't achieve the same level if you're completely unfamiliar with it. So it's trying to get them to sort of review what's good for them. And it's okay if it's not their usual level of of excellence. Don't go home and think, I didn't do this, I didn't do that, because you can't possibly have done that. Because it's a different area where you don't know the team you're with, you don't know the patient, but look at what you did that was good. What's good about you never goes away. It's just in a different context. So it's looking at that as well. People sometimes forget that they're experts because they've been moved somewhere else and they still need to remember they are still experts. It's just a different context.
3: I just think it would be a real shame if it went unsaid about one of the most remarkable things that's come out of this pandemic experience and that has been the teamwork. Our team, for example, in theatres has had to go over into ITU um, and help with the COVID patients over there. And the big thing is, We were going in, as Liz rightly said, not as experts in ITU, but we were going in as experts in theatre who know how to don and doff, you know, PPE, Um, we know how to prone patients. So all of a sudden we had a team who felt like they were not experts in any means going into an environment, but then essentially becoming experts and essentially becoming leaders and then teaching staff who themselves felt extremely vulnerable. And it wasn't just ITU staff, it was staff all throughout the hospital who were coming into, as Liz said, an unfamiliar environment. And as Sonny said, you know, he was now working alongside colleagues who he only knew of them as working on the ward. The teamwork and the relationships that have been built from this has been amazing and outstanding. And we were talking in our nurses meeting the other day about what's something we want to keep from this experience. and absolutely. The team dynamic that has been built up from that, it would be a real shame if we were to ever lose that now. And I really strongly believe that these relationships will only get stronger now that we know each other a lot more and we've looked after each other. The dynamics and the support that's been given to people who you don't know. And actually, when everyone has an FFP3 mask on and a face shield and a gown and a hat, you actually don't really know who anyone is anyway. You're all kind of on a level playing field. And there is an element that you all just muck in. And at the end of the day, it just totally improves team spirit and camaraderie. And I think, Sonny, you very much in ITU will have noted that.
4: I can only agree with you, Claire. The word that we come across, Human Factors, is group climate. It is, wherever I walk in the hospital, there is now an acknowledgement of everybody. We all know each other so well. There are a group of people who I didn't know before who manned the doors. And I know they've been employed specifically. But they're the newest recruits to our hospital, if you like. And even they know who you are. And of course, they've got to see your badge and all the rest of it. But everybody from the dining room staff to the porters, the cleaning colleagues, the nursing, medical, doesn't matter who we are, physios, under that mask or whatever we were wearing, the spacesuit, we'd all just gel. There were some pretty acute situations and acute trauma that was going on. And everybody just proverbially just held hands. And they lifted you because they knew your heart was going to sink. They could see it in your eyes or they could feel it. And we just held strong. And it's harder to manage an emergency in that environment, much harder. I could feel my respiratory rate go up. You know, when I'd leave the unit and it'd been a, you know, an acute situation, you felt yourself perspire more. Physically, you were you know, disabled, if you like. But actually, what got you through wasn't the equipment and it wasn't the science. Actually, what got you through were your mates. And your mates were your mates. Who were in there at that time sharing it with you, and there could be a whole different group of people every day, but it was that spirit, and Claire said it better than I did, but it's that team unity, and it would be a crying shame if we lost that now. Because people came and saw what we did, were heavily thankful and grateful. And that spirit doesn't just stay within the hospital, it spills over our telephone clinics that we do every week. They're keeping in touch with the families, they're keeping in touch with relatives, they're keeping in touch with. The professional staff, our own staff here, it all spills over into communities. I think that spirit, it's just infectious. You know, a big kiss to all of us.
0: It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you all. And thank you very much. Hi, everyone. I'm here today with Nabil Bharti, who's a maxillofacial surgeon. Hi, Nabeel.
1: Hi, Sarah. Nice to see you again.
0: So my question to you was going to be, when did you first become interested in human factors?
1: I think I probably became interested when I was doing simulation training back as a foundation doctor. And the idea of human factors was kind of put into my mind. And then when I joined the Royal London Hospital in 2012, One of the consultant surgeons there was very interested in human factors and asked me to help train dentists and junior doctors using the simulation suite.
0: And how has your knowledge of human factors helped you throughout your training?
1: It's helped me recognise the importance of building relationships at work and becoming aware of human factors and becoming aware of my own behaviour has allowed me to recognise when I'm not functioning as well as I could do and try and stop that, basically. I think human factors is a really interesting discussion because it's suddenly become on vogue to talk about it in medicine. But essentially, it's behaving in a way that we probably do in everyday life, but tend to forget about when we get to work. And it's nice that it's being recognised now That a lot of the errors that are made and a lot of the problems that we encounter at work can be overcome if we pay attention to how we behave as clinicians and just as, as people, really. So, I mean, as a trainee, it's meant that I've been able to develop links with not only colleagues in my specialty, but other specialties and HCA's, porters, managers and a whole spectrum of people that are part of the team.
0: It's kind of like just being human, isn't it?
1: Yeah, it's just being human. And I think the most important thing is recognising that the people you deal with are human too. And there's always two of you in a discussion and there's always two of you in a discussion where you're not agreeing. And respecting the other person or the other point of view and not allowing any discord to influence your decisions or influence what happens on a day to day basis, I think is really important.
0: The last question is, how has your knowledge of human factors helped you during this pandemic?
1: That's a really great question. It's helped me to not get swept up in the hysteria that was everywhere in the first couple of weeks. It hasn't necessarily helped me to change people's behavior, but it's helped me to remain focused on my behavior and ensure that I remain consistent and true to myself. Because I'm now aware that there are factors at play which are beyond my control and mean that people behave in certain ways when faced with extreme circumstances. For example, there was a lot of anxiety and a lot of poor communication, meaning that people felt decisions weren't being made, even though they were being made, but it wasn't being communicated to them. And as a result, people's anxiety went up. There was lots of conflicts. And I was able to take a step back and try and identify what people wanted and try and help them get it, basically. But I think the biggest bit of it was helping me cope with my own anxiety, I think.
0: pretty important isn't it in terms of being able to function
1: yeah
0: with me I have Dr Kerry Fisher who's a foundation trainee with an interest in human factors so Kerry you're working as foundation trainee at the moment yeah how did you first become interested in human factors so I first started looking at human factors in my final year of medical
2: school. I would heard it discussed mainly in the context of the Martin Bromley case and we discussed the patient safety aspects of that but it wasn't something that was formally taught. I'm an RAF military trainee and they offer courses whereby you can learn more about human factors and then become a facilitator to then teach about human factors to other people and I was looking to use my background from learning from them and apply it more with a medical background and take on it and then try and aid awareness of human factors within the medical community.
0: I like how you've taken something you've learnt in one area of your life and then made it fit in another area and how you've tried to use that to help other people. So at the moment, what's your work like? So at the moment,
2: the foundation trainees at the hospital I work in are rotating round between teams and across wards. The theory being behind that is that you'd be working sometimes in a COVID ward in higher stress environments and then at other times working in a regular ward with less ill patients in some cases. And that would give you a little bit of a break from the fatigue and uncertainty
0: associated with patients who are ill with COVID. And how has your knowledge of human factors helped you in your day-to-day work with this pandemic going on?
2: I think the knowledge of human factors has enabled me to be a bit more aware of how I'm feeling and how I'm reacting to the uncertainty. Working with patients with coronavirus, I'm able to sit back and maybe be a bit less harsh on myself because I know that this is an unknown situation. Not a lot of people know how to deal with it appropriately and therefore I myself shouldn't be there being harsh on myself and not knowing the next step if a patient becomes unwell. I think in terms of working within new teams as we rotate around wards, uh, I've been able to be maybe a bit more comfortable with working with different teams and different nurses and members of the MDT. In terms of communicating with new people, um, integrating within the team, and then also in terms of communication then trying to work with relatives as well because the thing that's completely different with COVID is that actually a lot of the times when patients are unwell we're updating families over the phone and not able to see them and see how they're reacting to the news and that's a good 50% of your non-verbal communication you've just lost so being aware of that and how to deal with it appropriately, I think it has been a bit better and maybe a little bit easier
0: for me to deal with personally. That's really insightful. I've learned a lot about human factors. Um, I've learned how they're relevant in this current time. And hopefully we'll all remember them going forward into some form of normality in the future. Thank you, listeners, for joining us today for our Human Factors episode of pandemic podcasts please join us next time for our next episode i would also like to mention that the ph nhs practitioners program has also got drop-in sessions every day and they are a very useful resource and it's completely confidential so please do contact them if you need help